Amen. Come on, tell Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm not going anywhere. Amen. In one of uh, Jesus' parables, he talks about a persistent widow who's suffering, going through hard times, and she's knocking on the door of the leader to get help. And Jesus says, that's what it may feel like for you as Christians right now on earth. You're, you're suffering, you're going through things, and you're knocking on the door of the Father saying, help me, come on, don't you see me, help me. And he says in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, he says, I tell you, somebody say, God says. God says he will see you and come quickly and bring justice. So as much as we wish that right now he would come on that horse, he would set every wrong right, we have to be patient and keep knocking on heaven's door, believing that he's coming. So God's got us. He's going to take care of us. So he says, I am going to do this for you. Do not doubt that. But notice the next part of this verse. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So God is saying, I'm going to do my part. Don't be concerned of whether or not I'm going to bring justice. I will. Keep knocking. Keep praying. Don't think I'm not hearing you or ignoring you, that the Father's not going to send me. But then he says it right back to us. But will you be here? Will you be here in faith? Will you be here living for me, having that faith? And so when we wrote this song, this is another homemade goodie here. We wrote this song to remind us to say to Jesus, I'm going to be here, Jesus. I'll be here when you come back. I'm going to be waiting for you. I'm going to be serving you. I'm not going to let people distract me. My friend may leave, but I'm not leaving, Jesus. The weather may change, but I'll stand out in the rain and wait for you. Jesus, I will not have you ask where I was. You're going to see I was right here waiting. So can we just raise up our hands? We may be tired. We may be going through things. We may be calling out for justice, but just raise up your hands as a sign of worship and just sing it out one more time with the worship team. Would you do that? Make a confession of faith. I will. And I will be here. I want to be here, Jesus. If I get tired, Lord, give me strength. If I lose the words to say, give me the words to speak, oh God. If others leave, help me not feel alone. If they discourage me or persecute me, love on me, Jesus. I need you because I will be here waiting for you. One more time for the city of Chicago. No matter what we go through, we're going to be here waiting for Jesus. I will be here, 5405 West Diversity, on the south side, on the north side. Come on, we're going to be waiting for Jesus. If you're going to be here for Jesus, give it up for the Lord. Give him that praise he deserves. Amen. Hallelujah. We're going to be here, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I'll be here waiting for that kingdom to come. And think of it this way as we get a little bit deep. It's so good to have you here this morning. And think about this way. I'll be here waiting for him. And guess where he is waiting for me? In heaven. 
So if I don't see him come and I close my eyes for the last time on this earth, what's the next thing that I'm going to see? I'm going to see Jesus looking right at me saying, welcome home. Welcome home, my son. He's going to say to you, welcome home, my daughter. So may our hearts long for him. Uh, Some of you may not be mature enough yet to read the Song of Solomon, uh, but for those of us who can read the Song of Solomon, understand that that is a picture of the love that God has for us in humanity. And so he loves us. He cares about us. Somebody say, repent or else. Come on, say it like you mean it. Say, repent or else. Don't you love our Jesus? These words come right out of the Bible. The English translation that's the most popular throughout history is the King James Version. 1611 is when it came out, and it contained this phrase, repent or else. If you're new, we're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. We're in chapter 2. You can go there with me. Look for Pergamos or Pergamum, depending on how your translation is going to phrase that word. It's in chapter 2. We're going to get to it in just a moment. You can hold your place there. We're going through the seven churches. But as we get ready to read what God says to the third church out of the seven on our list, I want everyone to get this. Nothing is more frustrating to me as a Christian leader than to hear people talk nonsense and say it's about Jesus or nonsense and say it's about the Bible. I know that we in America, we're quite privileged. We have Google. We have cable TV. We have access to all of these wonderful online encyclopedias. But it is shocking to me the level of ignorance that people have towards the Bible, and yet they assume they know what it's about. C.S. Lewis said it like this, that most people are refuting a God of Sunday school, and they've never gone beyond the things they learned in Sunday school. So they're arguing with this depiction that they have of a, of a Sunday school version. I'm not saying all Sunday school is, is bad, but this kind of low understanding of the Bible. And they think they can use that now to somehow disprove Christianity. For example, I love what the, the builders of the ark there in Kentucky said, because they built a life-side ark. They said, Sunday school teachers, uh, stop showing pictures of the ark with everybody just happy and singing all the time. Uh, you know, like they're just whistling while they work. Show the people out in the water trying to beat the door down to get in. The ark was not just a, you know, just go sailing with Noah today. It wasn't just a trip at the lake. The earth was being destroyed. So, you know, imagine if you're only in a church where your Sunday school picture is the animals are just coming together and they're just having fun and Noah's just throwing the hay there for the cows and the horses to eat. You're missing the whole entire point of that story. We're not supposed to be sadistic and say, well, show me them dying, no. But we need to let our children know Noah's ark is a time of judgment upon God's earth. The reason why those animals are in the ark is because God is sparing them. This is not to be taken lightly. So just take that uh, to heart as I begin to share this with you because as we're going through the book of Revelation, I'm, I'm really wanting you to pay attention to the verbiage of Jesus. So remember this, 1611, the English translation, now known as the King James Version, has this phrase, which is actually an ultimatum, repent or else. And now in the 21st century, we're embarrassed by this. Many, many Christians are embarrassed by a Jesus that gives ultimatums. And then so what they'll do as you're preaching to them is they'll say things like this. Don't judge me. How many have heard that before? Don't judge me. They'll say things like, don't judge me. But then what are they doing while they're doing that? They're judging you. 
And so then you'll explain to them, you'll say, listen, I'm not the judge. I did not make the decision, but I'm telling you what the judge said. And then they'll say, well, you can't even tell that to me because nobody's perfect. And then what have they just done? They've become a judge over me now telling me what I can or can't do. But they're not perfect either. Oh, did that go too fast for you? See, people oftentimes saw the limb that they're sitting on and not understanding the contradiction. Some of you might be a little bit young, but uh, you might have seen this before on a meme or a gif or a gif or something where the wild coyote is chasing the, uh, what is he chasing? The roadrunner, thank you. He's chasing the roadrunner, and then he goes off the cliff, and there's that time where he's running in the air, right? How many have ever seen that before? And he's running in the air, and then he realizes, I can't run on air, and then he falls down. That thought that he has, that he cannot run on air, but he's doing it for a little bit, is what we need to do to show our friends and family and critics of Christianity that they're really just running on air. They have nothing to stand on. Let me explain this a little bit further. Let's say you're with somebody and they're wanting to make an argument against Christianity. They're going to go get out their logical tool like a hammer and a nail and a saw. And they're going to build an argument like they build a house. And they might put as the floor of that house towards the argument is that God is love and he loves everybody and would never send anybody to hell. That's going to be my foundation. I'm standing on the love of God. God would never send someone to hell over who they love or how they identify sexually or whether or not they murder a baby in a womb. God is just the God of love. And then from that floor, maybe they'll build some walls and they'll put up a wall and say, you know, these Christians are hypocrites and they'll build up a wall of hypocrisy here and then over here they'll build up another wall and say you know some of these things in the stories don't make sense you know about a talking donkey a character like that will come up today Balaam and and this doesn't make sense and they'll build this whole argument and then they'll say come live in this house instead of the house that you've built in Christianity my house is built on love it shows the hypocrisy of the world of the Christian world it shows here all the nonsense fairy tales in the bible and then as a roof and maybe a cherry on top with the chimney they're still going to do charity and all these good things. And you don't need Christianity for that. Look at Bill Gates. Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world, gives away so much money. See, just give it to Bill Gates instead of to your church because your pastor is going to buy a car with it or something, right? Now, here's the problem, and I want you guys all to be able to think through these things. Jesus said, build your life upon my words. Because the one who takes my words and builds upon them is like a man who built upon a rock. You see, the question that you have to do at that moment is question foundations. You, you're, you're drawing out this wonderful picture of this argument, this house that you're building, and it comes from love and all that. But I just got a question. What is that love grounded on? Because love just don't start from anywhere. You don't get that from the goo through the zoo to you. I want to know what's under that. In other words, you need the earth. To build a house, don't you? You don't build a house in space. You don't build a house out there in, in this atmosphere. You need a foundation. And so what I always love to do with those folks that think they're smarter than Jesus, I go, well, let me ask you a question. Where did you get the understanding that God is love or that the universe is built on love? You didn't get that from going from the goo to the zoo to you. You didn't get that in a science book. Science doesn't say anything about our art or beauty or love or any of those things. You don't see scientists looking at the Picasso going, this is good art, and then looking at the Mona Lisa or something going, bad art. You don't discover it with those same tools, do you? You do it with the tools you're using now, logic. And so what I want to do is I want to show them that their foundation is based on something. And ultimately, everybody get this. Remember the garden. Their way out 
was to say they could be God. And so he said, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where you're the arbiter, you're the decider, you're going to surely die. And what you'll find at the bottom, at the foundation, the very thing that they're building on is their own opinions, what they think. What they think about love, they're the ones deciding what they're going to take or leave out of the Bible like they're at a buffet of religion. I'll take a little Jesus here, a little Buddha here, a little Hinduism here. But we need to bring them back to the foundation of God and say, listen, you're not the arbiter of truth. God is the arbiter of truth. And this whole house you're building is really being built on sand. And yes, houses on sand can look cool for a little bit, can't they? But then you look at an old hurricane come by, and then what does it do to the house built on sand? It goes. And what's God going to do on Judgment Day? He's going to blow apart that flimsy foundation they said of love, that wall of hypocrisy, all of these things that they thought they thought were so compelling It's not because there wasn't a little truth here or there found in those things. It's because it wasn't built on the foundation. The foundation has to be of God's Word. Why am I taking my time to go a little bit deeper with you guys today? Because when we hear Jesus say, repent or else, we better stop arguing and start listening and obeying. Because if we think we're going to build an argument against the God of the Bible and it's going to stand on Judgment Day, it won't. He said it's going to be blown down. Like a house in a storm built on what? Sand. So he said, take these words of mine and build it upon the rock. So when we look at the the stories of these early Christians, and I've put here a chart for everyone, and you can go through this chart on your own. Our notes are on our app and online. And you can begin to see how he's talking to his churches. This is a report card for them, but a warning, a cheat sheet almost for us. So if this is how he judged those churches, I better learn what he did there so I can be ready. It's a cheat sheet in that way, and technically it's not cheating if you wanted me to learn from their mistakes. Can I hear an amen to that? So if I'm, you know, if I'm messing up the same way the church of Ephesus messed up or Pergamos, as we're going to learn today, then I better come to God ready to have no excuse and accept judgment because I know how he judges. I know how he handles churches. So this, let's go back to this. When, when we take these words from Pergamos and apply them to our culture, we say, whether it's on the streets or to our neighbors or wherever we're at, we say, repent or else, and then we fill in the blank with what God will do because of what they're doing. If they say back to us, you can't judge me, we say, are you judging me judging you? Because we're all making judgments here. Even Planet Fitness that says they don't make any judgments makes a judgment on whether or not you're a member or not. Try that one time with Planet Fitness that says they don't judge anybody. No judgment here. Judgment-free zone. Just walk right in. And when they say, are you a member, say, don't you judge me. Don't you judge who a member is and who not a member is, please. Thank you very much. Walk right in. And as you take some of that equipment home, are you stealing that equipment? Don't you judge me. Where I got the equipment sign, where I got the equipment from, there is a big sign that says no judgment zone. Thank you very much. I'm taking home this dumbbell. No, what are they going to do? Before they saw off that limb they're standing on of no judgment, now they're going to reestablish it. They're going to say, oh, no, no, what we mean is we don't judge on how you do health here or this and that. Okay, we understand you're going to, you know, let us come in whether we're in shape or not. Okay, that's what you mean. But you have to understand your words say something different. So maybe they could say, it's not going to be as catchy, but maybe uh, everyone's welcome to start their fitness journey here. Leave it to me, the pastor here. Or we're going to respect you where you start or something. But the very fact they say no judgment zone 
is saying a whole lot that they're not willing to live by, are they? So now imagine the person saying to you, don't judge me, and you shouldn't be saying the judgments of Jesus to me. What have they just done? Court is in order. Judge Sally here. I am the judge, and now Tina is the one being accused of bringing wrong judgments. I now judge that Tina can no longer bring judgments. What have they just done? They just became a judge. They just became a judge to tell you what you couldn't do about judging. So who is the one that's most consistent about not judging? The one who doesn't judge and say anything. And then obviously they won't go very far in life because they have to judge what a stop sign is. They have to judge what a green light is. Those are all kinds of judgments. Is it really green? Maybe it's not. Okay, is that a red light? Is that a police officer? Are these laws applicable to me? We can't live in a world without judgments. The question is, are they the right judgments coming from the Word of God or based in truth and righteousness? And then oftentimes, as we'll talk today, that there is sin in the church. We're not talking about sin out there in the the temple of Jupiter or in the temple of Hercules or of Zeus. God, through his son Jesus, is going to deal with sin. And what do people even say in the church? Don't judge me because nobody's perfect. You shouldn't do that. Now, hold on, let me get this right. You are an imperfect person telling me now what to do perfectly? I thought I wasn't supposed to listen to you. I thought I was supposed to listen to Jesus. Because if we're both imperfect, as you're so happy to admit, then we should both listen to the perfect person who told us to tell other people their imperfections. I'm not looking for laughs. I'm looking for agreement. How many get that? Because some of you gave me some blank looks. Who was the one perfect person that walked the earth? And what did he say? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then he said, go make disciples of the nation, teaching them to obey all things. So the one perfect person told a whole bunch of imperfect people to tell each other about their imperfections. That's what Jesus said, courts in order. So as we come to the scriptures and we begin to hear the words of Jesus, let us not hear them with the ear muffles of the culture. Hearing that Jesus would never say that or Jesus would never do that. Let us not see what's being laid out here to us with the goggles that we get from the world. Let us have the biblical lenses on and bring them into focus and go, I like that Jesus. I'm going to serve that Jesus. Because if that Jesus bothers us, that Jesus makes us feel uncomfortable, then we are once again in a living contradiction. Sometimes people want to put Jesus on the, on the uh, you know, we're using the, the court example. They want to put Jesus on the witness stand, and they want to be a judge over Jesus. How can you be a judge over the one who made you? How can you be a judge over the one who gave you the common sense you're using to try to judge him? Where did your logic come from if it didn't come from the Logos, the one who was in the beginning with the Father? He himself being equal to the Father, through him and in him all things were made. And so what we don't want to do is, as uh, Cornelius Van Til said, to sit up, you know, on the lap of God, have permission to be here like as if he was Santa Claus, you know, get the example. We don't then want to sit on his lap, have his legs be the very thing we're undergirded on, getting close to him because he has allowed us, and then trying to slap him. <laughs> That's what it looks like when we rebel against our God, isn't it? God, I can't slap you unless you help me. Okay, God, help me up here. Give me logic and a sound mind so that I'm not a rock. Help me understand that I have life and that I have ability to think. Give me all of these things, and then now I'm going to use it against you. And what does God look at that person as, as a rebellious child? Depart from me. For I don't know you. Well, I demand to be here. You didn't make here. You have no place called here. 
I have every place called here. How many know he's the creator of every place? You don't belong here. I'm going to put you where you belong. Well, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. God will not feel sorry for the church that he's judging here if they were to do what's wrong. God will not feel sorry for other religions. On judgment day, God is setting right what we knew was right. It's not that we're disobeying a God we're not sure exists. It's that we're resisting and disobeying a God we know exists from our conscience. And the Bible says we'll be held accountable to that. How many are ready for the word today? Say, I'm ready. Amen. Let's go to the scriptures now. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. I have set free those brothers in the back. So I got the little doodles up here. I feel so bad for them up there because, like, if you notice, like, I only just have, like, some basic notes, but, but I have these guys flipping back and forth, back and forth the whole time. And I said, man, let me just see if I can do this and not look like I'm a jerk up here on the pulpit. Maybe somebody sassy, you know, is, is, is hearing this, and they're like, Pastor, why don't you just move it yourself? Because I'm always asking them to move it. Does anybody even notice what goes on back between there? Nobody. Some of you do? Okay. I'm doing this to so want to be gracious to these brothers. They do an amazing job. Can we give it up for them in the back? We love you. All right. Look at this uh, passage here. To the church of Pergamos, write these things. He who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell and where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some there who are teaching or holding to the doctrines of Balaam who taught through Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Somebody go, oh, snap. Amen. God hates some things. Repent or else. Everybody say repent or else. There it is. I put it in New King James so we didn't have the these and thous, but it goes all the way back to the Greek context, but obviously into our modern English. We can understand that. Repent or else. I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword out of my mouth. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone. On that stone, a new name will be written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Can we hear an amen for the word of God? Amen. There we have the, the word of the Lord to this wonderful church. Here are some things that I've been wanting you to see as a pattern like I had in the chart there. Jesus normally comes in with a declaration about who he is. He then begins to share about how he feels about the church. He starts off with positive things mostly, and then he comes in with some criticisms and things they need to work on with instruction. Then he ends positive and then makes some more de declarations. Let's review how he uses that format with this church. What does Jesus say about himself? He has a sharp two-edged what? Tickle stick? Is that what he has? He has a sharp two-edged back scratcher. Say it with me, two-edged sword. What do you do with the sword? You cut things. We had that in the first service. We're going to take our time and, and understand. With a sword, yes, yeah, somebody's getting it like, kill, yeah. We cut certain things with machetes, steak knives, knives, butter knives, etc. What do you cut with a sword? People, an enemy. You kill either an animal with that or you want to kill with that a person. 
Jesus says, I have a two-edged sword. Now, when we look at the book of Revelation, it's last on purpose. We should understand much of the imagery here already because we understand the Old Testament and we understand the letters from the apostles that have come before this. In the book of Hebrews, we're taught that the double-edged sword is the word of God. And some people just end with it there and go, oh, that double-edged sword, that's just the word of God, so that's pretty cool. You know, we just hear good things from Jesus. That's part of it, but the word of God actually cuts and strikes down. If you think of Ananias and Sapphira, that's New Testament Acts. If you think of the curses that he brought all throughout the Old Testament, that's always from the word of the Lord. The word of God sends forth angels to do X, Y, and Z. The word of Lord sends forth his, his, his plagues. That was the word of the Lord that came against the Egyptians. And so his word, the word of the Lord is not just things like Psalm 23, where the Lord is seen to be our shepherd and he's speaking the nice things to us. The word of the Lord is also the hellfire that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Then what does he praise the church for? He praises them for two things. He says, you have held on to my name. So these people are being persecuted. And he says, you have not denied my teachings even in the face of death. And he names one of their martyrs, Antipas. May we be remembered in the same light for laying down our lives for Jesus, holding on to that which is good. But remember, no matter how good this church was at this thing, there was something important for them to know that they were doing wrong. Oftentimes when I talk to Christians about the things that they're doing wrong, they will remind me of all the things they're doing right, as if now those right things are going to do away with the bad things. So imagine like you saw me in the, uh, the back parking lot shaking my wife, abusing her physically, and cursing her out. At that moment of you stopping me, if I said, well, I pay the bills... Does that change the wrong I was just doing? If I say, well, I've loved her for 15 years. No. And you see, oftentimes we as Christians, we think because we're in grace, that we're in greasy grace, that God is just letting everything slide because now we're in. Remember, this is the people in the church. He even says through an apostle at a different time that if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will happen to the wicked? And then when he was on the earth, Jesus said that you enter through the narrow gate because that is the path where few are on and that's the right path. But wide is the gate that leads to destruction. So we ought not to hear all the good and now go, the bad, that's not too serious because it is serious. And they have two major issues. They're holding to the doctrines likened unto Balaam, an Old Testament character, and someone named Nicolaus or Nicholas, and they're following those teachings. Now about Balaam, we have this mentioned in other scripture. We also hear about it in the time of the Exodus, that Balaam was a Moabite prophet, and he was asked by the Moabite king to bring a curse to the Israelites. Balak was the Moabite king. But every time he tried to curse them, God kept giving blessings. And then after that, they got upset, and they realized that they couldn't stop the Israelites by bringing a curse because their God was the ultimate God. Who can you appeal to greater than the God of the universe? You can't appeal to Satan. Satan's got his, you know, God's got his foot on Satan's neck. So then Balaam figured it out. He said, we can't, we can't get another deity to fight against them, but what we can do is have them sin against their deity. So they sent out their Moabite prostitutes to entice the men of Israel to ha start having sex and then to start worshiping their gods through the, the, to the prostitutes' enjoyment. Isn't that wicked? 
But it worked to destroy the Israelites at that time. And then there came a, a curse upon the land. And it was the devil's idea. And as we hear here, the devil's actually made his seat there or his authority in that city. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then what does he say? Repent of these false doctrines. Because if they don't repent, what is the warning that he tells them? He says, if you do not repent, I'm going to fight against those who don't. Those who are on that side, I'm going to fight against them. So everybody get this right here. We have understood the sword is not just for cutting bread. You don't have a knight sitting at the table putting out a sword and going, here, I'll take care. I'll slice the bread for you, you know, at medieval nights or whatever that is, medieval times. You use your little bread cutter. You use a little steak knife. The sword is meant to cut off the enemy. Now notice this. As sure as Jesus has told them at the beginning, I have a sword and you know what it's for. He now says to his dear saints, he says to those in this church, if you do not repent for these false teaching, that sword is coming against you. And I think that's something very serious. And the way I like to describe it is like in my family. Do you think my, because I have swords, I have, well, I have knives, I have guns, things like that. Do you think my children should be afraid that I have a gun or a sword or a knife in my house? No, but do you think the person sneaking through the window should be afraid? Yes. And this is what God is saying to us. He is saying, you don't have to be afraid as a Christian that God's going to judge you and send you to hell. The Bible says in 1 John that there is no fear in love, and that perfect love casts out all fear. And those of us who are Christians should not have any fear of God's judgment. This is the example that I like to give. You and I should have no fear of a law-abiding citizen holding a weapon. Just like my children should have no fear of someone from the military or seeing something going on with the Air Force. None of us should have any fear. But how many know? If we were recruited by ISIS and then found ourselves on the battlefield over there, how many know we should be afraid? Like I say, this other example, like right now, imagine if I was a general and I was at home with my kids. All of those weapons are only there for their safety. They would have zero fear of it ever being towards them. Their house is safe. Somebody say the father's house. Father's house is safe. But if Bethany said, I want to go fight with Muslim terrorists over there, she should be afraid of what we're going to unleash on them. Now notice this. The Bible says that the, the devil, he sinned against God first, and then hell was prepared for him. Matthew 25, that hell, the lake of fire, was prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell is not meant for us. We're not meant to go to hell. We're meant to rule and reign with Christ. When you got created, did he start you off in hell or did he start you off in your mother's womb upon the earth? And when he created Adam and Eve, did he create Adam and Eve first in hell, suffering judgment, or did he create them in a perfect garden? So what were you created for? We were created for perfection, to dwell in God's presence. But hold on. If we side with the great traitor in the cosmic battle of good versus evil, if we side with the traitor, we will have his consequence. And so I think it's sad that when Christians look to the Bible, they don't hear Jesus warning the church, if you do not repent, this will happen. He then ends by saying, you have to have ears to hear. And everyone here I know is hearing, but the question is, are we really hearing? Are we listening and believing? And then he ends with this wonderful nuggy about giving us hidden manna and a white stone with our name on it. But before we get into that, I just want to explain a little bit more of this passage so that we don't miss out on it. When we learn about the sins that they were committing, it wasn't in the sense of they were denying their God. It was in the sense of here's a way I can worship God that is undefined in the scriptures. 
And we have to be careful with that because today in the church, people are making up a whole lot of things and trying to attach it to Jesus. And they have what you would appear, what you, you look at them and it would appear that they have well-intentioned motives, that they have a good heart, but in all honesty, they are treacherous to the things of God. For example, think of the person in this church that's doing the things like Baal. Do you think he wakes up or she wakes up in the morning going, I know I'm on my way to hell. God is going to strike me down with the sword of his mouth, and it's going to go bad for me and everyone like me. No. What that person is doing is going, hey, psst, come here, come here. You know, God is a good God, and there's no reason why we can't have sex outside of marriage. I mean, really, who are we hurting? It's not rape. And you know what? God is a good God. He, he, he lets us take communion. What's wrong with going over here to the Mardi Gras and having the parade for Bacchus this time? I mean, I, can hang, I hang out with you. You're a Cubs fan. I'm a Sox fan or, or the reverse. You know what? You come to my church, I'll come to your Bacchus parade. I'll come to your Shaka Zulu parade. And so these people, as they appeared to be good in heart, were actually wicked. And I, I'm so concerned about the Church of America today because we're, we're bamboozled by the smiling preacher. We're, we're tricked by that song on the radio that mentioned God in it. We're, 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 we're drawn to the emotionalism of that person telling us their story with tears, and we now want to take their side against the God of the Bible. And we have to have a heavenly perspective lest we go down the same road they did. Because even before Balaam, you had Aaron, the high priest of God, feeling the pressure of the people of the seeker-sensitive movement, telling Aaron, Aaron, we don't really know where Moses is, and really, will he ever come back? Aaron, make us a God that we can worship now. They, they didn't say, like, we want to worship Satan. We want to start sacrificing our children. Those things would come later as a consequence of worshiping a false god. Just like abortion became a consequence of worshiping a false god, it never starts that way. It just starts off in the 50s and 60s like in our culture. Let's just move a little bit away from this. Let's just get another kind of god similar to the one we had but different in so many ways. I guarantee you the people of the 60s would blush at Cardi B and Miley Cyrus today. The most wild hippie person you have of Woodstock would look at what we're calling mainstream entertainment and go, y'all crazy. I'm telling you, it even freaks out that generation. The reason is, is because sin is always deceptive. And then this thing about the Nicolaitans, everybody get this. We don't know as theologians much about this man. We only know probably his name because it's the first part of it. And we don't know everything that's going on. But it was serious enough that Jesus said to them, guys, you are doing this thing which I hate. And what I can't understand for the life of me as a pastor is why Christians don't think God hates some of their behavior or hates some of their beliefs. When the God of our Bible has used that very same language, God hates this. And so I don't know exactly what it is, but I guarantee you somebody who got that letter from Pergamos that heard it um, being said to them probably had to look at their phone and delete Nicholas from Facebook. <laughs> They knew exactly who that dude was. They knew what they were picking up from Nicholas, from the radio station or from the podcast like Joe Rogan. Like God was saying something specific that everybody at that time knew, I don't like what this person is teaching you. I don't like what they're putting into your mind about this subject. And you better be careful 
because I'll come and fight against you. But there's another thing I want to point out before I get a little bit more into making it practical is that it says you are where Satan dwells and his throne is right there. I believe in taking most things literal until there's a reason not to take it literal. There's nothing here that gives me the idea that I shouldn't take it literal. So that means that there, because the devil can only be in one place at one time, though he can lead through his army of demons and fallen angels, he has to be seated in different places of different regions. We follow him throughout the Bible. He's wandering in different regions trying to do different things. At this time, he is over this city. For whatever reason, we do not know. And notice how the Bible does not give them an excuse. Like Jesus doesn't say to them, okay, guys, now listen. This is going to be way too much for you to handle, so get ready to get beat up by the devil a whole bunch, and you're just going to, you know what, you're not going to be very, very good Christians for a while. And I understand just when everything is done and you're done wiling out with the devil because he's having a party there or doing whatever, just say you're sorry and we'll just move on. No, this is what he says. Everybody get this. I want you to get the Jesus of the Bible. Either you let them kill you with their sword or I'm striking you down with mine. Because I don't care if the devil's there striking you down with his sword. He can only kill your body, but he cannot kill your soul. You better be willing to be like Antipas and say, put me to death because I can't deny my Jesus. Sometimes, come on, sometimes you need to put people in those situations. As a parent, as a parent, sometimes my children get so scared, I have to say, you either faith this or I'm spanking you. It's, you know, it's real. I'm not going to strike them down. I'm not their final judgment. How many know sometimes as a parent, you know, maybe my children are learning to ride a bike or they're having to go back into the Sunday school after somebody picked on them or, or they got in trouble or something. And they go, I'm scared. I'm embarrassed. And I'm like, you have to go. If you don't go, I'm going to spank you. Because there's a time for the compassion. There's the time for, I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry you scraped your knee. I'm, we're with you. We're going to kiss the boo-boo. But then listen, you've got to face this fear. Because if you do not face this fear and I allow you to live like this, you will be chased by fear all across this earth. And the best thing I can do right now is put in your, listen, I, the best thing I can do right now is put a greater fear than you falling and hitting your knees is me spanking your butt. And I'm not talking about abuse. Got to be careful here. I'm not talking, but they fear more their dad's disapproval, the spanking now than getting up and trying that bike again. And what Jesus is saying to them is, there is a sword on this side, and there is a sword on this side. The sword that they have on this side is the one that will take your life temporarily, maybe hurt your family, take away your property, and you are going to have to face that. Because if you don't, on this side, if you deny my name, I don't care how scared you are, but if you deny my name, I'm cutting you down. And so he then holds up that martyr, this beautiful name, Antipas, it's also used of Herod, who is a bad guy, but that name gets spoiled. We should redeem this name for the martyr's sake. Antipas is said to be Jesus' faithful martyr. And now we have the courage that we need to go into the world and face our problems. But as I said before, notice the devil has already figured it out. Man, he's saying to his other demons. And C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters of a head demon talking to a lower demon. And it's interesting on how C.S. Lewis uses just the wisdom that we would have to think what do demons and the devil talk about because they are at least as smart as us, at least, if not smarter. They've been around a long time. And so, for example, the head demon says to the, to the little demon, don't try to keep him or her from church. 
Because when you keep them from church and you say they can't do something, they'll get more passionate to want to do it. But here's the thing. Let them go to church, but make sure they feel that church is just a social club. Let them scratch their religious itch, but keep them from being awakened to the greater thing happening around them. Because we would rather have someone in the church, he's speaking to the demon, to C.S. Lewis telling like a story here. We would rather have someone in church that has gone with our plan than someone that's resisting us because we keep pushing against them. And so for some of you, as you came into Christianity, you felt more of an opposition than you did before Christianity. You were surprised, some of you, because when you were not serving God, things were going pretty much the the way it was for everybody else. Life was easy, and maybe you thought when you came to Christianity, you're just going to go boom, boom, boom to the next level. But all of a sudden, coming to Christianity costs you relationships, costs you jobs, costs you the peace that you might have had, that false peace in relationships. But what really happened is you became in opposition to the devil. And so Satan's there pushing against them. But here, everybody get this. He realized they're going to die. They're going to die for Jesus. We come full frontal attack. They're all going to be like, I'm ready to die for Jesus. Throw me into the lion's den. But watch. He says, you know what? I got a plan. Get Nick here. Bring Nick over here. Nick, start telling the people of the church that homosexuality is approved by God. The Old Testament God was a meanie. Jesus is a nice. Start spreading that around, Nick. Hey, come on over here. Come on over here. Hey, listen, I want you to go tell everybody they can still party like they used to in the ways they used to because God still forgives. And what does the Bible say? There are some now who are doing it. In a church where people are dying martyrs' death, you have people sacrificing to idols, partying with the pagans, having sexual perversion, and doing whatever crazy things old Nick was doing. So what does that say to us as we get into the realm of this being practical? What are you doing? (laughs) What's happening in this church? What's being spread among us? Because if we're not careful to judge what is being taught to us, I could become a pastor of Balaam, like Balaam. One of the men that I used to listen to, Carlton Pearson, was raised Pentecostal, powerful African-American preacher and gospel singer, over time began to question the doctrine of hell and then came to his congregation and said, I don't believe in hell anymore. Rob Bell, an influential, one of the first on YouTube and social media, a, a guy that just you could listen to almost like a Joe Lostein would tell all these great stories about love and sacrifice, began to deny that Jesus uh, was the only way. He began to put out exhibits in his church that made you start looking at the religions through the lens of all of us having similarities. You would come to the church and see a Buddha statue or a a, a thing dedicated to the Hindu religion and how it compares to Jesus. And see, over time, those people change. So if they can change, can I change? Yeah, can you change? And so what what is the message we're supposed to get from this? Because obviously, we're not alive at this time. We're not in Pergamos. We're in Chicago. What are we supposed to get from this? We're supposed to make sure we hold on to the name of Jesus. We're supposed to make sure that we're willing to lay down our lives for Jesus, but not only die for Jesus, live for Jesus, and keep the teachings of Jesus no matter what they say or do. Amen? Amen. Before I get to those teachings, I want to end with this encouragement because I might get lost in what's wrong, okay? But I want to tell you what's right before I do. Here at the end, he tells them two precious things to the ones who are willing now to face the sword 
and also to live for Jesus no matter who's teaching what. Look at the first thing he says, I'm going to give you hidden manna. I call these like, you know, nuggets, little hidden nuggies, the treasures of heaven. You think about these guys, the gold rush, you know, these show, the people on the gold rush show. They go out looking for these nuggets. Man, they have these huge machines, but they find gold that really could just fit in your hand. How many ever watched that show before? The price that these gold miners will go through to get something hidden is astounding. But why do they do it? Once again, think about it. The treasure that they're digging up is worth all of the effort. It's worth all of the tractors. It's worth all of the hours. What they end up holding in their hand, that treasure is worth it all. My question for you is, are you willing to see the great treasure that God has for you? We have to go back and understand the scriptures. What is the hidden manna? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, whoever eats of me, whoever drinks of me will never hunger or thirst again. And then our Roman Catholic friends go, amen, I'm eating Jesus today. Transubstantiation, the substance of the bread and wine changes to the literal body and blood of Jesus. That's what he said. And then all of a sudden we show them. At communion, was Jesus still alive in the flesh? Yes. And what did he say? This is my body. Did he say, this is my body? Start nibbling on my finger. Mm. Here's my blood. Everybody get ready. Here it comes. This is ridiculous. He talks like this in the parabolic language. And even in John 6, he says, the words I speak to you are spirit. One time Nicodemus in another conversation in John did not understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus was telling him to be born again. And John said, Jesus, I don't think my mom's going to like that very much. Going back up in there might be a little bit tight and hurt her a lot more than it's going to hurt me. And you all get serious in church, but that's what Nicodemus literally thought. The scholar of his day took in his mind what it meant to be born again was, I'm going back up in mother's womb. And Jesus said, hold on, dude. Whatever gives birth to flesh is flesh, but whatever gives birth to spirit is spirit. Save your mom some trouble and get born again of the spirit. Your mom has already given you the first, the, the first birth. The first birth came from your mom in flesh. The second one comes from your father by the spirit into your spirit. And the same is true here. When Jesus is at the communion table and he says, while he's in the flesh, this is my body, this is my blood, we're all supposed to sit back and go, ah, I get it. But hold on. I love going deep with people because right here they may say, well, that's weird, you know, eating hidden manna in eternity. Don't we already have eternal bodies? Why do we need it? Well, first of all, in our story, we still needed the fruit of the garden even though we were in eternal bodies. And Jesus, after the resurrection, still eats after an eternal body. So a part of our existence is eating and drinking and fellowshipping. The Bible says when he comes and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's the finest of aged wines and meats. Then the Muslims said, we can top that. We're going to put virgins in there. And then we look at them and say, that's demonic. First of all, the virgins need to have fun too. They don't want to be with your skanky self. Come on, somebody. Nobody ever thinks about the virgins. This is your dude for eternity. Well, I don't want to be one of the 70. So let's think about it. Isn't it gross? But we have to talk about it. Our heaven is not based on carnal delights, but there is a part of our reality that was always there and we get back, which is fellowshipping, eating and drinking. That was in the garden. We get those things back. The tree of life is there. It's at the end of the book, at the front of the book. But everybody who thinks that's weird, get this. If you watch Bart Simpson, he's a cartoon made of code. If you're watching Bart Simpson eat something that's in the show, is he actually eating that thing? Let's say he eats bread in the show, in the cartoon. He's not actually eating it. It's one thing of information, of code, eating another thing of code or information. Are you with me? 
That's in the world we create. So before people think that we're silly when we talk about a spiritual world where we're going to eat things, how about now we look at this world? This world is the virtual world of God. Do you know that the bread you're already eating is just made of information? That information is being consumed by you, which is a composite of information. And so why would we think it to be wrong that in the eternal state, we are consuming the things that God has spoken? Because in this state, we're already consuming everything that he has spoken. Because when he made this world, he made it through his spoken word. You are a thing that God has made and held together by his word. And you're eating the things that he has created and held together by his word. And in eternity, you're going to eat and have those things held together by his word. And they're going to nourish your soul. I am made of the, here's another way of thinking of other than substance. I am uh, an information. I am made of the substance of God and I will consume the things of God. But it's not only, it's not only the things of God that I will consume, that I will also consume the very nature and character. The Bible says, oh, this gets so good, that we participate in the divine nature. That it's not just like I eat an apple and they say you become what you eat. In some way, we do. But this goes even deeper than that. I become like my God as I'm consuming who he is through his word. This is not just for us to be spiritually minded and think it has no earthly good. We can see it through nature. I become in some way like an apple when I eat an apple, but it doesn't transform my character or my life and those things. But when I will be in the presence of God, eating that hidden manna that nobody else sees right now, but we will get to have, we will be transformed to his image going from glory to glory to glory. In other words, you won't be getting fat. You're going to be getting glorious. Come on and eat some of that hidden manna and let God transform you. I love that relationship that he will foster in eternity. Because if you talk to people, they're like, man, eternity sounds boring. We're just going to be fat baby angels floating around in heaven. That's not the eternity I'm talking about. The eternity I'm talking about is consuming the nature and the words and the character of God and being transformed by those things. Oh, but I think it gets even better what he does for us. Before we get back to the rebuke, somebody say, give us the good stuff. Here's a few. The other stuff is good. I say, say the nice stuff. Thank you. I'm going to give you the nice stuff. Thank you. Because it's all good. It's all God's word. Is he says to them, I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name written on it that nobody will know except you. And once again, I always like to talk to the skeptic because we live in a skeptical world. And people will think, oh, that's just crazy and weird. That has to be symbolic. I don't think it has to be symbolic. L look at this right here. How many carry around a credit card right now? I carry around these because they have value and they transfer value. What I love about this one from Apple is this one is not made out of plastic. Listen to what this one's made out of. Ah, pretty cool. Everybody wants one of these now, right? Golden Sachs Apple MasterCard brought to you by Metro Praise International. Sign up now. 2.5 introductory interest rate. No payments for 90 days. Sign up in the back. Get a free T-shirt. <sighs> Wow, somebody made one out of metal. Think about this. A lot of people get into birth stones and things like that. As long as you don't get weirdy and, and, and hyper-spiritual about it, it's fine. It's a stone, and someone wants to give it to you, that's fine. But I think about even on our earth, we carry things of value made of these materials that have substance and information on it that you don't know. Unless you're hacking it, of course. But if you can not, you know, if it's protected, you would never know. I would only know. Now, why is that important? Because I think when we look towards eternity, so many of us feel like we're just going to blend in. 
we're going to power ranger all into the image of God and get lost in him and no longer have our self-identity. That's not what heaven is like. That's not what the new earth is like. When we get there, he's going to give you something that only you will know, watch this, that identifies your worth and your value. And as you have that, you will carry that as your treasure everywhere you go. This is who I am in my relationship with my God. No one else has this. This comes from the same God that can name every star and never repeat the same name, who knows every one of the hairs on our head. He is going to give us a stone with our name written on it. And here's where I think it might get a little bit interesting because I can imagine my wife walking up to me in heaven going, tell me what yours is. I want to know what he told you. I'll tell you mine. Come on, tell me yours. But let's just think about that for a second, not to make my wife look bad, but you know how people can be a little bit nosy and sometimes spouses always want to know. We should know each other's business. Don't want to get myself in trouble now. But you know what I'm saying. And she can always check my phone. I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but you know what I'm talking about. But why do we do that? Because we're insecure. You know, it's like we have to know that because we're insecure. So, so it would be almost like, what, what, what did he say about you? And let's say maybe he, he gives me the name Lion, but, but he gave you the name Hippopotamus. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're like, Jesus, you said Joe's a lion. I could see that, wow, he's bold, but I'm a hippopotamus. What do I do? You know, but more people die from hippopotamuses than they do from lions, right? So anyways, we, we in our own carnal mind on this earth can be so jealous of each other. Well, your shoes are different than my shoes. Your hairstyle is different than mine. You look different here. Oh, I'm so jealous. But in heaven, everybody watch this. In heaven, we will all be so secure over our name, we won't need to even ask. We won't have to ask because we'll know that he made you special just like he made me special. And we won't know each other's special name. Now, somebody might say, well, it's on a stone. Can we just read it? Here's another thing. We're Pentecostals, are we not? And we speak in tongues. What if, big what if, don't leave the church over this, what if the name is written in the language of our tongue? Sometimes you bring your friends to church and they get scared. What's going on in that church? We're speaking to Jesus. Why are you speaking that way? Just speak to him, right? So imagine on the stone, that's your name, and you're walking around, ain't nobody know what is. Somebody else's name might be, you know, and you're like, I don't know what that is, but that was your tongue, right? That was your tongue. And so we look at it, and we all are like, I have no idea what that even says. But the one who understands it understands exactly what it says. And before you just think we're weird, because we can be weird, this is not one of those times. We're walking on that line of weirdiness, though. Is, isn't all language information code, whether it's in the earth or even in the heavenly realm, isn't it all just to be understood and deciphered by the ones using it? And so however God uses language, I believe we will even be able to look at the stone. I can see yours. You could probably see mine. But we still won't understand what it means because it's going to be in, in a language, information, a code that only we decipher, showing us the special things of God. Now, if I hear anybody talking about now they have been revealed their special name, guess what, Pastor? God's already given it to me. It's right here. We just know you're weird now, okay? We don't get that until we get to heaven. Amen? All right, somebody say, get serious. Okay, here's the serious stuff in closing. We now need to apply this to our lives. I wanted to make sure as a pastor, I brought in 
all that he was sharing there because I don't want people to think we're here just to be sin-focused or to make ourselves out to be better than others. That is not our intention, but our intention is to be a faithful church. I want to be one of the churches that God doesn't have anything against. So just even going back to the chart to remind us of this, look at where the black boxes are here, these uh, four sets of black boxes. Smyrna and Philadelphia had no rebuke or warning. That's the kind of church I want to be. Look at this block here, though, under Laodicea. That block is under the place where it says, praise for the church. God literally has nothing good to say about that church. So there are two churches. God says, I have nothing bad to say about them. One, he says, I have nothing good to say. And then there's four where he says, I got some good and I got some bad. I'm aiming for the ones that have nothing bad to say about it. So it's not that we think we're better. Please be gracious and humble with us as we're being gracious and humble with you. But I'm trying my best by God's grace to really point out what I think would be applicable to us. The first thing that I would point out is that we can relate to the sin of Balaam because we are now compromising like they did. This was a pagan prophet who tried to get the Israelites to compromise. How do I think these things come into Christianity? Hey, you know what? You know, these guys over here have statues and idols, and we're Christians, and we have a lot of cool stories about our guys. Let's make some statues and idols of them. And you know, there's a lot of mother goddesses over here, and we have somebody who's a mother to our God in the flesh. Let's start praying to her. And I believe over time, good-hearted people, people that I love and admire, the very ones who are giving their lives for Jesus, began to add to their Christianity things that Christ never talked about. Did Jesus ever take time out to say, hey, everybody, this is how I want you to talk to my mother when we're in heaven? Did he ever say to Peter or any of the apostles, listen, you got two jobs, one on earth and one in heaven. On earth, you're going to do these things, plant churches up there. You're going to be answering a lot of prayer. No. He always affirmed, where two or three of you are gathered together, pray in my name. There I am. We don't need any other folks involved in this communication. Now, sometimes people may say, well, what about prayer partners, Joe? We pray with each other here. Yeah, the Bible says any two touch and agree on earth. On earth. I'm not supposed to be asking the sixth-winged seraphim for help today. I ask my brother on earth. Why? Because I may be doubting or I need physical encouragement. I don't need a spiritual being I can't see to talk to God who I can't see. I already can't see and talk to God. So the reason why I talk to you about my issues is to encourage me when I may be doubting a God I cannot see. But in heaven, what did David say? Who do I have in heaven? It is you alone that I desire. In heaven, I don't need multiple beings praying for me, no matter how great their lives were. And remember, saints are on earth first before they're saints in heaven. All the churches are addressed as saints on earth. You're a saint, amen? Unless you're an ain't. You're an ain't if you go, I ain't living for Jesus, I ain't doing that. Then you're an ain't. But everybody be a saint, amen? Other thing, tarot cards, horoscope, all these superstitions that Christians now do without even thinking about my friends, I used to live in New Orleans, and for some of you, when I say Mardi Gras, you're like, of course Christians would not go to Mardi Gras. Unless you live in New Orleans, then you're a Christian who makes an excuse to go to Mardi Gras. And I'm not talking about just going to a parade to watch your kids being a band or something. I'm talking the ones that are named after the pagan gods. You can look it up right now, the Shaka Zulu Parade. The Zeus and Bacchus parade. You have never seen this before in America unless maybe you have been to somewhere else where they celebrate it, but nothing like New Orleans. When I first moved from the Midwest to New Orleans and I began to see a statue of Bacchus go down the, the, the parade route and people showing off their body and, and screaming for things and all this, I, I literally thought I just went to Rome in 300 A.D. I have never seen this. But, you know, we in Chicago, we're so much better. No, we're not. 
We all the time make compromises, and we have to no longer do that. Always filter everything through God, whether it's your parade, the shows that you're watching, the people you follow on media. Maybe sometimes it's like chicken. You chew the meat, spit out the bone. But there are others. You know what I'm talking about. They are looking to influence you. You know, meditation is is scriptural. Stretching is scriptural. But how many know in Hinduism they use it as a form of their religion? We had a woman attending our church who who was seeing a guru that believed he was Jesus. She had no issue with it with all the churches that she went to, and she thought I was strange for now checking up on her. It was just a simple conversation. My wife will tell you. We had her over at the house, asked her how her day was going, what did she do? She just got back from meditation and yoga, and I was like, okay, where'd you go? And then she names the place where she went, and I'm like, I think that's the name of a guru. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a guru that teaches us there. And I'm like, yeah, I think I've, uh, I've heard about this. These are the gurus and this, this sect of Hinduism that believe they are a Christ. And she was like, well, they kind of talk like that, but I really know who Jesus is. I go there for these other things. I feel good. And I said, nah, I don't think that's the right thing to do. So she began to argue with me, and I said, they're not, not playing with this. So what did I do? I called up the place, okay? And then I said to them very clearly, I said, hello, I'm a Christian pastor in this area. I want to ask you a question. Do you believe your guru is Jesus? And they said, yes. I said, what would you think if I said your Jesus is a false antichrist Jesus leading people to hell? Would you still want me to join you for the crooked chicken? And they go, no, he would not want you to join for that. That's the same thing, like, oh, Muslims and and Christians were all the same. Okay, ask the Muslim if they want to have the barbecue. You see, you're Christians, you give up your Christianity so fast. Seriously, you're you're like the person that's on the first date saying, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, and then all of a sudden, woo, here I am, ravish me. Guys, why, why why do we have to bend to everybody else? Stand for Christianity. Stand for your values. Amen? We don't have to be rude. We don't have to be mean. I mean that. If you have a Muslim friend, you don't have to force them to come eat your barbecue. But do you get my point? Like, I, I had these guys over the other day because we were in, online arguing with witches and, and uh, Vikings and pagans. And three of the Vikings wanted to come here. Literally, they used to be Christians. Now they're, they're Vikings. And they just love that other Christians come celebrate their pagan deities and have the big beer glasses and do all the Viking stuff. And I'm just thinking to myself, that is exactly what it looked like back then. Here you have paganism all around you, and people wanted to join in with it, and now we literally have the same kind of paganism, and people are joining right in with it. Please don't do that, lest God fight against you. Uh, The next thing here, sexual immorality. I don't think that takes a long time to explain, but let me just show you how commonplace it was in their day. They had temple prostitutes. Imagine trying to get somebody to come to church today. You're like, man, come to church. They're going to be like, how long is that going to be? And you're like, you're going to be here for a while, maybe two or three hours, you know, whatever. Pastor's going to talk at you, yell at you. He's going to say, oh, come a bunch of crazy things. Music is all right. You know, you're going to do that. Imagine saying this to your friend. Dude, they got prostitutes there. I'm in. What is a sinner going to say? They've got prostitutes at the church? Yes, of course I'm in. You can look it up, temple prostitution. And then when you look at their goddesses and the ones that these prostitutes were worshiping, giving their body and religious rights to, they are full on in pornography. And Christians are going, hey, man, don't judge me. Every now and then I go to Diana's temple and I hang out, you know, but I ask for forgiveness. I promise you right now, if we went to Amsterdam, if we went to Nevada, if we went to Mexico, Tijuana, where prostitution is legal, talk to the person right after the prostitute, after they met with the prostitute and go, 
Can I just talk to you for a second? Let me ask you a question. Religious-wise, how do you believe? I guarantee you most of them would still say I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I didn't hurt anybody. I'm helping them. Christian people, come on, wake up, friends. Oh, nothing wrong with pornography. I'm not, I'm not hurting. They're doing it. This is what they make a living off of. It doesn't hurt. You know, same thing with homosexuality. It's natural. It's accepted. And what we have to do is take a step back and go, are we being lied to? The church needs to stand up for the things of God. Now, because I don't know what the Nicolaitans taught, I taught I'm going to bring you a bunch of things that I'm hearing in our church, things that you'll understand. How about this, idolizing super-duper Christians or the Christian leaders? Oh, I listen to so-and-so, and so-and-so has more people than you do, Joe, so they must be right. I got to listen to them. Now we're finding out a lot of these superstars have super messes. A lot of mega churches are mega messes. Sad. I'm not saying all, but we're watching them fall like flies. And it's sad because, you know, people here in good churches are idolizing them. When they're not bringing you the scriptures, they're not going through the Bible, they're not really doing that which you need to grow from. Yes, it may have some truth, but you have to guard yourself from who you're following, who you're listening to. The other one we've talked about today, you know, non-judgmental Jesus. This is a teaching that just continues to, to permeate our culture, many ways to heaven, greasy grace. And, and let's just think about this. This is another thing that always gets me. Pastor, don't judge me. Jesus took my sins, past, present, and future. If that is true, why don't we all just get away with as much as we can and go, I'm sorry, Jesus, on our deathbeds. That, you, know, you know what that does? That violates every common sense thing we think about relationship. How many believe my wife is a forgiving, loving, kind person? How many think I should cheat on her for the next 50 years and at the end just say, hey, I'm sorry, spend the dying years of my life with me now because you're so nice, Nancy. That would violate everything in the relationship. We're not talking about being forgiven of our mistakes or things that God is working on. We're talking about people that I have met that have purposely showed little to no care of God's commands because they get the greasy grace at the end. No, grace is not greasy. It's not slippery and, and dirty. Look to the cross and see what our sins cost us. Look to that cross and understand that's what Jesus paid for our mistake, not to keep on sinning. Abortion, as I talked about before, you think people in the 50s and 60s, if you look around, by the way, most of these churches were built in the 50s or 60s, unless they're older churches, but you'll see the kind of church that I'm talking about. They're the neighborhood kind uh, style church, red brick. They usually have like the steeple and then the sanctuary, and then to the side they have the classrooms. You look up these neighborhood churches. Go by their, their, their uh, you know, the, the buildings. Look at their, their cornerstones, most of them, 50s and 60s. But what happened around that time? People started saying, you know what, we don't got to push prayer in school. Everybody should have their own choice. And you know what, if a mother doesn't want to have a baby, they should be able to abort it. Those churches let down their guard and look at where we are now. You can abort a children, a child that can live outside of the womb, and you can strangle it, decapitate it, and then sell its bodies for medical research. This is where we have turned into now. Self-centered Christianity I talk to people all the time that say, yeah, because I'll see them. You know, I, I recognize most of us here. And I'll say to them, why don't you come to church anymore? And they'll say, yeah, you know, you, you guys made me feel like I had to do this and do that and do this and do that. Well, I'm sorry I asked you to be a Christian. Going back to that Bible, remember what it says at the end, Jesus taught them to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded? Well, they're like, well, I didn't really want that. I have had people literally tell me that I don't really want that. One time my wife and I were sitting down with somebody. We met through the Jesus Matters conference, real nice person, but he told me, I'm not down with that. I don't need, he literally told me, the pastor, I don't need discipleship. Where have we gotten in the Christian world where you can sit down with a pastor who has wrote books on discipleship and let those words come out of your mouth and not think there's something wrong? 
It's because he has probably been so bamboozled over the years of some self-centered Christianity that he thinks as the customer he's always right. You're not always right here. Amen? I'm not always right here. Call the manager. Let's get the Holy Ghost on the phone then. Come on, Holy Ghost. We need you to sort it out. Go back to the Word. Help us, Jesus. Rebellion towards church leadership, and they kind of go hand in hand. On one side, you have people just self-centered, and on the other side, because they have been hurt by self-centered Christianity, they don't trust anybody in leadership. And so here you got people like myself, the ones that are grinding it in day in and day out. And I could list, I'm telling you, I could list at least 50 pastors like myself right now, either in this city or around the country. Dr. Angelo Ophelia. I can name to you Pastor Brother Anthony Freeman. I can name Troy Bonds. He knows some of these men, these professors, you know. These wonderful men and women of God who never get any attention, who are never brought into the spotlight, have never failed their marriages, who have lived godly lives, and yet people still rebel against them, don't listen to them, and live however they want to. Listen, just because you went to a restaurant that had a bad waiter or a bad cook doesn't mean you stop eating. Just because you went to a bad church or somebody let you down, please do not stop serving in the church, trusting people. The Bible says love trusts, love hopes. Don't you hope that Jesus has kept his church going throughout the 2,000 years? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. If Jesus fails, then he's a liar. So we should always, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful for those of you who have come to us from other churches, but we should always be in churches with good leadership that we can trust. Even if you have to leave one that's a little bit shady, we get it. But please, give us the honor that Christ is asking for so we can serve you. I mean, honestly, let's say you you heard about a back doctor, and you're like, I'm never going to a doctor again. Tell me how that works out in life. At some point, you got to go to a doctor and go, man, help me. I can't take out my own appendix. I can't do this. I need you to help me, and I'm going to trust you, and I'll do my research. We are all about that. That's why on our website, you can look at whatever belief you can possibly think of, right? We have it laid out, all the sermons. We don't hide it from anybody because we want you to trust us as much as you can trust what God is doing in a church. We're not trying to go beyond that. We don't want to meddle, but these are the things I think we should avoid. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Can you stand up with me today? Give it up for Jesus and his church. Come on. How many are ready for spring? How many are ready for good weather? Thank you, Jesus. The snow is melting. But how many want to make sure you have Jesus in your heart? Amen. As the seasons change, as we look forward to what God's going to be doing in this upcoming spring and summer, Easter's coming around the corner, let us take the book of Revelation serious and look to our own lives. Band and altar workers, would you come as I just begin to pray in closing? Father, we thank you for this word today. The word that you gave the church of Pergamos. They were in the midst of Satan's throne, a time of persecution, and yet you told them not to give in to the false teachings that were around them. Lord, would you examine my heart, starting with me, so that I don't go astray from that which is important to you? As I'm praying, would you also pray? Look at your heart. Are there things that you've intermingled with your Christianity that God wants to untangle today? Notice that he loves you. He cares for you. Because that same double-edged sword does what in Hebrews? It separates the sin from the spirit. It separates those things from us. So today, instead of looking at the word of God as something to cut us down, let's come to the word of God to remove and to cut away that which doesn't belong. Knowing that he's promising us a seat at his table and a name 
that he alone will know. Isn't that precious? A few moments right now, if you don't know Jesus in this way, maybe just start from the beginning saying, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. You did what no one else did. I believe you took my sins. Forgive me. Help me to live for you. But those of us here who have already prayed a prayer like that, take a few more moments even right now. Lord, look at my heart. Take away excuses. Take away things that I've seen others do, and I'm thinking I can get away with it because they do. Help us to live for you, Lord. We, we want to be like you, Lord. We don't want to be hypocritical, hyperjudgmental. We just simply want to be obedient few moments right now and then we'll dismiss in prayer and worship and those who will want prayer you're more than welcome to come for any need in your life or any questions the prayer workers up here would love to do that but right now would you begin to pray for some of those things we mentioned even in our culture pray for the Bill Mars the Katy Perry's or the Miley Cyrus's you know some of these more famous folks pray for them but also pray for your neighbors your friends those who kind of adopt that same worldview. Pray that God will open their eyes to see the truth about what they're doing and how it's headed towards destruction. God, save our entertainment culture. Save our media from these lies and deceit. Satan knows how to tempt us. He's been good at it for many years. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation in our educational system. Lead us not into temptation in our politics, O Lord. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil, God, of this world. Come on, pray for other religions. You're not better than a Muslim. You're a sinner just like a Muslim. And without Christ, you would go to the same hell. Let's pray for God to open the eyes of Muslims, for Hindus, our neighbors who have different beliefs. These Viking young men that I talk to, Lord, save them. Bring them back, Jesus. You have room at the table for them. As you're praying, I want you to think about if you've ever been to a wedding. And at the wedding, they'll have usually like a gift at the table in the front for where you're going to sit. And you take that with you like it's a bag of candy or something like candles. And they'll give you a gift, and you'll know that's where I sit. It has your name on it. But have you ever noticed at a time of a wedding, there'll be a lot of those left over because people said they were coming but didn't come. But there was still... a a bag, a gift with their name on it. I believe that's what heaven's going to look like. We're going to see that God had a name, a stone for everyone. Everyone, for even Hitler, for Muhammad. It didn't matter. He had a stone for them. He had a way out for them. And so we need to pray. Some have already passed. Their judgment has come. Let's pray for those in the land of the living that they'll come get that stone, have a seat at the table. We don't just preach about it, we pray about it. If someone from Belmont and Clark would see this prayer meeting, would they believe what you've been preaching to them on Sundays? Come on, preachers. If your neighbor saw you praying for them, would they believe you mean what you say when you preach? Because if we really did love them, we would pray for them before we preach, right? We would really pray for them because we know we can't change, folks. God, raise up pastors, raise up leaders, raise up businessmen and women, raise up moms and dads to change the world for you, Jesus, to walk away from deception. As we close out, we're going to sing this song, I Surrender All. Would you sing it before you go? I'll dismiss right after this. If you would like prayer for anything, come on up. We're going to pray for you as we sing, I Surrender All.
I surrender all. And I surrender all. All to Jesus. How many are going to wait, raise up the white flag to Jesus? And let's sing it again. I surrender my ways. I surrender what my friends think about me, my culture. I surrender, God, temporary success. All to Thee. You alone, O oh God, are worth living and dying for. One more time, can we sing it out? Who are going to be the best moms? Those who surrender motherhood to Jesus. Who are going to be the best fathers? Those who surrender all to Jesus. Who will be the best community citizens? Those who surrender to Jesus.